0: Well, week six. Um, I don't know about you, but that was fast. Um, on the one hand, I can't believe we've already had six weeks in here together. On the other hand, it feels like Christmas was 100 years ago. Uh, and, 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 and here we are, here we are at, at practically at Valentine's Day. Uh, I really hope you're coming tomorrow night. Um, you know, as, as Wade was describing the material on... Uh, uh, on additional, the additional that Dr. Chapman has developed on apology. I thought to myself, you know, a lot of a lot of a lot of very very bookish Christians and a lot of Christians who really want to study and really want to work hard are very into apologetics. And if you don't know the term, I'm not talking about you, but if you do know the term I might be. And and apologetics is good. But if you're living with somebody in a love relationship, ask them if they want you to get better at apologetics, or if they want you to get better at apologizing. <laughs> and you might find out that in your walk with God, your apologizing skill might matter more than your apologetics skill. Just a thought. Three purposes. Shared this with you for the first time six weeks ago. Uh, I guess five weeks ago tonight, if this is night number six. Um, Number one, that you would know what you believe. The, the, the notable majority of, of communication that I've had, in, either in conversation when we've caught each other and had a chance to talk, or you've emailed me, uh, noteworthily, if not overwhelmingly, most of what I've gotten, gotten back in my conversations with you, and this is a great blessing to me, has has included statements like, well, you sure do have me digging. That, that scouts honor. That means more to me than if you opened with, well, I sure do agree with you. Um, again, agreeing with me is, is, is truly, truly, truly not um, my shepherding role in, in why I took this, this challenge to teach this course. It's that you would dig. If you end up agreeing, I'm not a sociopath. I, I'd rather be agreed with than disagreed with, right? You know, I don't care what anybody ever thinks about me. You're a clinical sociopath, and, and uh, right? I mean, that's, that's the definition. Uh, so of course I love being agreed with, but I don't have a deep need for that. My deep need is that you'd be a student of the Word of God. That's, that's my responsibility, is to prompt you deeper into God's Word. And so if I've, if I've caused you to go home and go, oh, I've got to dig a little bit myself, yay, I'm glad. Second, that whatever you believe about the end of the age and whenever it's coming, that you would have a faith that is ruggedized. It's, it's difficult times ready because in all views of the end times, they could be quite a long ways off. Um, Every time somebody jumps forward and says, it's upon us right now, they've ended up being vindicated as a fool. Um, So I'm not going to join that train. But you personally will face difficult times. And we can talk about Massive meteorites being thrown at the ocean and all that involves or we can talk about your colon cancer diagnosis or your prodigal child or grandchild or your horrific abusive situation at work or your and you know what you live through that you might wish for something as straightforward as a giant meteorite being thrown in the ocean your faith needs to be ready for those times when your situation goes rotten. And if thinking about surviving an age of persecution, at least having the possibility put before you, as something that your faith has to be ready for, can help you think in terms of having a a difficult times ready faith good most of us know to outright reject the worst extremes of the of the so-called health and wealth gospel most of us if you're if you're remotely comfortable around God's word as as we understand it and teach it here you're not caught up in the extreme edges of the health and wealth movement But it has a lot of roots and tentacles that are trying to reach back into more mainstream biblical churches these days. And there's a whole lot of, mostly Jesus wants me to be happy. Um, No, mostly what he wants is his glory and your good as he defines it. And the last chapters of that second won't be written for a long time to come. And he will be found to have operated for your good even if your transmission falls out tonight on the way home. He's not broken his word to you if your transmission falls out of your car tonight on the way home. And I'm not a prophet. And I don't wish for your transmission to fall out of your car on the way home tonight, but I don't want you to sit on the side of the road and say, they told me that if I followed Jesus, stuff like this wouldn't happen to me. I hope you know better. Okay. If your transmission does fall out, let me know. i would I'd be, I'd be a great story. Um, <laughs> Becky, are we okay? You're, okay. All right. The, um, and the third thing. And I'll say, more, I'll say more about this for the other night, that we would we would be able we would be able to study together, to discuss together, to present, and and to be able to, to live together as family in the body of Christ, even if we see some secondary matter or matters differently. This course has been about the the area of systematic theology called eschatology, from the Greek word eschaton, last or last things. Eschatology is not the only area where you've got dear brothers and sisters in this body of Christ who might see things slightly differently than you see them on a secondary matter. Well, I'm not going to compromise. Compromise proceeds from the extremely arrogant view that we might both be right. It has a holier cousin called accommodation. Accommodation proceeds from the humble view that we're probably both, at least in part, wrong. And since we're both certainly working alive with the capacity to be wrong, We don't need to get up in each other's face on a secondary matter. Because I probably haven't got it entirely right. (laughs) You don't either. (laughs) So there's no reason for us not to give each other some wiggle room on secondary matters. Now, that's important. That's why we have a confession of faith. That's why we have the Word of God and a confession of faith to help us frame our understanding, to help us understand what's, what's primary. If your life group teacher gets up this coming Sunday... And says, you know, I've thought about it. I've met so many nice Buddhists. And robes are more comfortable than than dress clothes. And they don't have nearly as many meetings. So I think it would be a good thing if we chunk all this stuff and go and all be Buddhists together. That's a problem. Because that's not a secondary matter. And that would need addressing. Okay. So, that we would study and know the word of God. That we would be ready for difficult times. And that we would have a framework for understanding that we can disagree in how we see secondary matters, and certainly the timing of the rapture is a secondary matter. Um, That's that's what this has been about and, and will continue to be about. All right, take your Bible and turn to Revelation 16. We're getting near the end. By way of recap... The 70th week is now largely behind us. It's, it's in the past. Matthew 24, says that those days, that back half of the 70th week from the abomination of desolation on, that those days will be shortened. Matthew 24, for the sake of the elect. Because after the abomination of desolation, at the time of the fifth seal is a time of widespread martyrdom. Um, martyrdom has been a part of the experience of the followers of Christ since the stoning of Stephen there are faithful believers who will not back away from their faith in Jesus Christ dying on planet earth today because they will not stand down from their profession that Jesus Christ is Lord. You cannot say that the Lord would never allow his people to lay down their lives for the sake of their faith. In fact, the New Testament, let alone Christian history, the New Testament shoots that view right in the head. And that, that period after the abomination of desolation, and if you happen to have stumbled in for the last night tonight you feel like you're playing catch-up, again, we've got these things on audio on our web page. Please, please catch up. Um, that, that period is, is bad. It's, it's rough for Christians. That's the, the period where I believe the mark of the beast comes into play and Christians find themselves excluded from, from the life of the community. Meanwhile, the unbelieving world is talking about the peace and safety that has been uh, been achieved. Because the the, the difficult things like the famines and the wars and the diseases that marked the first half of the the tribulation period before the abomination of desolation, those aren't occurring as much. They're not part. From the abomination of desolation on, the world's a pretty peaceful place. Just don't pay any attention to those Christians being loaded into the boxcars over there. For the unbelieving world, it seems like a time of peace and safety. 1 Thessalonians 5. But then, sometime before the end of that three and a half years, with the shortened days spoken of in Matthew 24, comes the unsealing of the sixth seal and the cosmic signs that both in the Old Testament and New portend the beginning of the day of the Lord. The period of God's wrath. The 70th week is not a period of God's wrath. It's a period of unleashed evil upon the earth. God's wrath comes in the day of the Lord, and the harbinger of the day of the Lord are the cosmic signs. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus, in his great end-time sermon, Jesus said, in that dark time, you watch for those things. The sun turned to darkness and the moon to blood, the stars shaken. And at that moment, lift up your head. Your redemption draws near. And right after the sixth seal comes the rapture of the church. The resurrection, the dead in Christ rise first and then we who are alive and remain are caught up in the air and we are taken off this earth before the seventh seal unleashes the trumpet and then the bowl judgments that together comprise the day of the Lord and the outpouring of God's wrath. I got a sweet email this, this week uh, from a lady, uh, and I believe, I believe, as I recall, um, her son, who is, is younger, maybe even a, 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 a teenager, who was with us last weekend here. And if you're here tonight, I'm glad. Um, asking in in light of the trumpet and bowl judgments, which are epically horrific, how how do you reconcile those with the love of God? You know what I think? I think that's a thoughtful question. And I, I commend the deliberateness of thought that goes into that. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they broke the whole universe according to Romans 8. Romans 8 says the creation itself groans. Looking forward to the moment that we'll get to at the start of Revelation chapter 20 in a bit. The universe got broken because of the sin of Adam and Eve. The only reason your sin doesn't break the universe is the universe is already broken. Every single sin you commit, every single, including your sin of insufficient gratitude today, because the, 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 the word of God says, both in everything and for everything, give thanks. Has there been one moment today where, that you've not given thanks, consciously given thanks to the living God for that moment? Of course there has. And if you understand the nature and magnitude of sin, that moment of ingratitude would have broken the universe had the universe not already been broken. That's the magnitude of our sin. Next time you sing amazing grace, you think about that. Because that is the profundity of the amazing character of God's grace extended toward us. When God levels the expression of his wrath at a world that has been at war with him since soon after he created it, it is not inconsistent with his love, but it is consistent with his holiness and his justice and his wrath. Every now and then, you'll hear someone say, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament sure seems a bit more severe than the God of the New Testament. And when I hear that, if I have a chance to respond, my response is, you do know that it's the, it's the God of the New Testament that throws the switch on the lake of fire, right? The character of God has not changed. The character of God has not changed. Every single human being since Adam and Eve, and that includes all of us, absolutely deserves the lake of fire. And it is only by the grace of God that those of us who are the followers of Jesus Christ have a quite different future. And if you're here tonight and you haven't followed Jesus, don't get hung up on, on, on locusts that could sting you for five months and you can't die. Don't get, don't get hung up on, on chronic food shortages or oceans turned to blood. That's not your that's not the thing you ought to be terrified by. The thing you ought to be terrified by is a body designed to live forever, which you will have, and a lake of fire that will burn you alive in a body forever, in a body that cannot die. Can be terribly hurt but not harmed. There's, there's what you ought to be going, wow, how do I avoid that? Because that's not five months. That's eternity. And my, my great fear would be, look, I know end time stuff attracts a lot of attention. This is, this is not necessarily a typical Wednesday evening attendance at McGregor these six weeks. And I'm glad you're here. And I'm not going to say, you ought to be coming all the time. No, no. Talk about the end times attracts a lot of attention, and I get that. what a shame it would be if we get our rapture timelines all nicely sketched and our seals and trumpets and bowls all nicely arranged and we have it all squared away and we miss the message of the cross and spend eternity in the lake of fire. Because even the seals, trumpets, and bowls are a momentary passing thing on our way to eternity in one of two places you've not come to faith in Christ, come talk to me afterwards tonight or talk to one of our other, there's somebody at your table who'd love to sit with you as long as it takes to explain to you with an open Bible how you can come to faith in Jesus Christ and miss the wrath of God and spend the eternity in the joy of heaven, okay? All right, diving in. Uh, the, we got to the sixth bowl. I called them saucers last week to make it my S fit. They are broad, shallow bowls. So they're almost saucers. They're actually more pasta bowls, my wife told me. That what I was describing was not really a saucer. It was a pasta bowl. But pasta bowl doesn't start with S. So I was using, I was using S's last week. We got to the sixth one. So we are in uh, the middle of, of Revelation 16, if you want to track along. The sixth bowl remember, there are seven angels that are pouring out these seven bowls on the earth. And the sixth poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. I'm in 1612. Revelation 16, verse 12. And its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth and from the beast's mouth and from the mouth of the false prophet. That is, three prophetic spokespeople are released onto the earth, They are spirits of demons performing signs who travel to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle of the great day of God the Almighty. Look, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed so that he may not go naked and they see his shame. So they assembled them at the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. I don't know what those three frog-like demon thingies are. They appear to play a role in assembling the, the armies of the world to appear to launch a major land attack at the heart of the nation of Israel by way of the Jezreel Valley, which is also called the Valley of Megiddo. It's interesting The God who created the earth and laid it out and then promised When God promised the promised land to Abraham and his descendants, none of them had ever seen the earth from space. They didn't didn't see how the earth's major land masses, Asia, Africa, and Europe, all connect at the crossroads that is Israel. The, uh, the Roman highway that ran along the coast from the southern coast of Turkey down the coast of the end of the Mediterranean Sea and then across to Africa was called Via, the Via Maris, the Way of the Sea. Heavily traveled ancient highway because it was how you moved by land from, from Europe through the Middle East, down, that is the edge of Asia, down into Africa. To get to the Via Maris, from inland into the, uh, the eastern side of the land of Israel, the, the broadest, widest way to do that. There's a lot of mountain ranges up and down the spine of Israel. But to get from the, the, the landmass that's off to the east into the heart of Israel and eventually to the Via Maris, to the way of the sea, the, 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 the natural, if you look at Google Earth and look at that part of the world, it's the Jezreel Valley, which is the Valley of Megiddo, which is Armageddon. It makes perfect geographical sense that if you're going to launch a major land attack, so apparently the kings of the world are going to be demonically led to say, you know what, we don't like all this stuff that's coming down on us. We're going to retaliate against the city that seems to have meant the most historically to the living God. We're going to retaliate against Jerusalem. And so the sixth seal permits them overland access to that valley. They are being corralled by these demon spirits into that valley. And we're going to soon come to the mighty a battle of Armageddon. But I want to warn you, it's a bit of a disappointment when we get there. Uh, it's, it's, it's like paying 15 bucks to see a movie, and the movie is eight seconds long. Uh, we'll, we'll get there in a minute, and I'll show you what I mean. Starting, okay, the, the, seventh, the seventh bowl. Then the seventh angel poured out this last bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the sanctuary from the throne. This is the voice of the living God. It is done. Now, this is not the same word as it is finished from the cross. It is finished from the cross is a commercial term. You've heard this before if you've been around the study of the New Testament. It's tetelestai, it has been completed. It's the same word that would get stamped, and I'm sure many of you have heard this, it's the same word that would get stamped or embossed on a paid-off debt certificate. Paid in full. Would be a fair paraphrase of what Jesus shouted from the cross when he shouted, it is finished. This is a different word. It comes from the root that is the verb of being. That is, that is if, you, if I were going to paraphrase this to one word, the one word is, enough comes the voice from the throne paraphrased but not inaccurate and there were lightnings and rumblings and thunders and a severe earthquake occurred like no other since man has been on the earth so great was the quake the great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell Babylon the great was remembered in God's presence (laughs) <laughs> We're going to learn about the biography of Babylon in the next couple of chapters. Um, the great city, there's, there's all kinds of good scholarly dispute about what city that is. I do not know. It's not Babylon because Babylon is referred to later. But the statement, Babylon the Great was remembered in God's presence, reminds me um, it's, it's, it's canceled now, it went off the air, but did, you, did any of y'all watch the original CSI TV series when it was on the air? Uh, you remember Detective Brass, the crusty old cop? I don't remember the context. I don't remember what was going on, but he was talking to a suspect in one episode, and I'll never forget this line because it struck me as so clever. Um, he was talking to one of his suspects, and he said, I'm starting, I'm starting to like you for this, meaning the crime that had been committed. I'm starting to like you for this. And not in a good way. <laughs> That's what this verse reminds me of. Babylon was remembered in God's presence. You know, you'd think that'd be good news. It's not good news. Babylon, Babylon now now finds itself pivoted, pivoting. And what is what is Babylon? All right. As we as we move forward. Oh, and by the, the rest goes on. Talk about this. Uh, uh, he gave Babylon the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. Every island fled. The mountains disappeared. Enormous hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, that'll ding up your hood, fell from heaven on the people. And they blasphemed God for the plague of hail because the plague was extremely severe. Verse 17-1 through 18:24 is the biography of Babylon. And the question always is, what is Babylon. Opinions of brothers that I love and trust are all over the place. But at least Babylon is this, an extremely pervasive religious system that captures the loyalty of a lot of the world but has nothing to do with salvation in Jesus. The, uh, the reformers in the 15 and 1600s were quite certain it was the Roman Catholic Church, because in their day, they couldn't imagine it was anything else, because they were living and dying and fighting tooth and nail against Roman Catholicism. I don't know that it's that simple. Here's what I do know. This world only has one false religious system at the end of the day. It's the same false religious system that's been in play since Cain tried to sow since Cain tried to offer God vegetables. Cain was offering God his effort when he set up his produce stand. Remember, Abel offered blood. Cain offered the fruit of his own effort. Cain is the author of works righteousness religion right there in the Garden of Eden. First thing fallen mankind tried to do Is I'm going to work real hard and sweat real hard and weed and plant and plow and cultivate and I'm going to get all kinds of pretty fruits and vegetables because of my effort and I'm going to present those to God and God's going to find me acceptable. That system goes by lots of different names, it has lots of different brands, it has lots of different geographical clusters like Islam in the Middle East, Hinduism in Southeast Asia, um, etc. In my view, that's Babylon. It may have something that comes more specifically into focus at the end of things, but its roots will be you conform to certain rules, you behave yourself nicely, you do good things. And at the end, you'll be found to be okay. works righteousness. It always it always will have a market. It makes perfect sense. The preaching of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. The preaching of works righteousness is to those who are perishing perfectly good sense and horrifically offensive to God. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament call our righteous acts bathroom filthy. If you offer somebody a little bit of bathroom filth to impress them with how wonderful you are, you don't make it better by offering more. The more you push your good works at God as the basis for your acceptance by him, the more you push your good works at him, the more filth you're shoving in his direction and the more offensive you become. That's the engine of Babylon, works righteousness. And again, whole books have been written proving that Babylon is this or Babylon is that or Babylon is the other. I, I, I'm uncertain, but I know that the roots of the great mystery religion of Babylon are works righteousness. Works righteousness has ever been the enemy Of the living God in a fallen world, and we have from 17:1 to 18:24 the biography of Babylon, which is ultimately and ironically, if I if I uh, if I understand verses uh, 16 and 17 correctly. Um. The beast himself will play a role in the ending of that system, as perhaps at the end of things the Antichrist wants all worship explicitly directed at, at him. But Babylon falls, works righteousness is is removed. And we come back now to chapter 19. You say, Well, I wanted a whole lot more detail about Babylon. Well, I I I I I, I, I want, I'm trying to get us to heaven, okay? So. Bear with me. Revelation 19, 1 through 10, the saints in heaven celebrate and sing the victory song of the fall of Babylon. Um, and it's a, it's a marvelous, marvelous chapter. Then we come to the setup. When last we left the scene on the earth, we've interrupted ourselves for a moment for the biography of Babylon. We've continued that interruption for the peek into heaven at the saint's victory song as Babylon falls. Where we left things on the earth, where these, these demonic spirits are gathering together the, the forces of earth to, uh, to make their assault on God's ancient capital of Jerusalem. They've been gathered together in the valley called Armageddon, 1911. This is the return of the king with, with great respect to um, Mr. Tolkien. I think he stole the title. Um, if you don't know what I mean, good, you're not a nerd. If you do, you're my people. Um, then I saw heaven opened. And remember, the, the massed armies of earth are waiting. I saw heaven open, and there was a white horse. We've seen a rider on a white horse before, but, but not this one. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe stained with blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. From his mouth came a sharp sword, so that with it he might strike the nations. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written king of kings and lord of lords then i saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out in a loud voice saying to all the birds flying in mid heaven come gather together for the great supper of god so that you may eat the flesh of kings the flesh of commanders the flesh of mighty men the flesh of horses And of their riders and the flesh of everyone, both free and slave and small and great. Oh, is there going to be a feed for the birds of prey? Battle hadn't started yet. Note that. We're still setting up. There's been no battle yet. Then I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. There's been no battle yet. The battle actually happens in the space between the period at the end of verse 19 and the start of verse 20. The end of verse 19, the battle has not yet started. Verse 20, it's over. Did you miss it? What happens in the white space between 19 and 20 is what happens when you bring great power into opposition against omnipotence. Great power. Impressive. Wow. Would you look at that? But see, the rider on the white horse brings omnipotence to the fight. This is more lopsided than Mike Tyson at his. Peak coming up against a toddler. This is more lopsided than that. I mean, the toddler might manage to bite him on the shin or something. (laughs) This battle is over before it begins, there's no fight. The beast is taken prisoner, and along with him the false prophet who had performed signs on his authority by which he deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. And both of them are thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were killed with the sword that came out from the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Ba-doop, done. <laughs> Sorry if you, if, you, if you bought a ticket and, and hoped to see, like, you know, a real special effects laden fight happen. There's just not going to be that. It's a lopsided wipeout. We round the corner to chapter 20. Armageddon's over. The beast, and more importantly, Satan himself, then I saw an angel are are dealt with for a thousand years. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand that he seized the dragon and an ancient, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the a thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. We'll see that. So let me, let me give you a quick little outline for the rest of this. Um, Roman number one, the reign, R-E-I-G-N, not reign like we've had all day here, but reign like rain to reign be, to be king. I'll go as far as verse 6. I've read verses 1, 2, and 3 already. Chapter 20, verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and people seated on them were given authority to judge. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of God's word, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life and reigned with the Messiah for a thousand years. The rest of the dead, that is the unbelieving dead, did not come to life until the thousand years were complete. We haven't yet seen the resurrection of unbelievers yet at this point. We've seen the resurrection of the believers at the time of the Lord's return and the the rapture of the church at the time of the Lord's return. And here they come back to reign with him. The rest of the dead, meaning the unbelieving dead, did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. The first resurrection is the resurrection of believers. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death, that is the eternal lake of fire, has no power over these. They will be priests of God and the Messiah, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. There are three three views of the millennium. This thousand-year reign is called by theologians the millennium, the thousand years. There was a view that was very, very prevalent in the last third of the 19th century into the first part of the 20th. Um, The view was post-millennialism. That is that that this millennium was going to happen, but it was going to happen as a consequence of of life just getting better and better and better. The gospel just being more and more effective in reaching people. And that it was going to get better and better and better until the millennium came. I grew up singing a post-millennial hymn. I bet many of you did too. You might not have, as I am sometimes guilty of, you might not have listened to what you were saying. We have a story to tell to the nations that will turn their hearts to the right. story of truth and mercy, a story of love and light. The chorus goes, and the darkness will turn to dawning. That is as a result of our missionary efforts. And the dawning to noonday bright. And then Christ's great kingdom will come on earth. The kingdom of love and light. That is explicitly post-millennialist theology. And hey, in the latter part of the 19th century, I mean, we're, 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 we're getting, you know, electricity. We're traveling from place to place faster than we ever have before. It is an era of great missionary penetration. It is an is a era of great advancement in learning. It is an, area of, of, an era of, of, of rampant optimism. We're just, we're just getting so much progress. You know who the leading nation in a lot of that progress was? The, the ones that were the pace-setters for the coming utopian world? Why, it was the Germans. We all loved them. The first half of the 20th century taught us that the Germans probably weren't going to lead us into a new paradise. Post-millennialism was tied very much to the world ascendancy of German thought, even among the theologians. Two world wars probably pretty well did away with post-millennialism. I don't know many post Second, fairly prevalent view is ah millennialism, that this thousand year period is, is poetic, it's metaphorical. Um, I, I, I have people whom I respect that hold that view. I don't. Um, it is spoken of, here's some Old Testament scriptures that allude to it. Um, it's spoken of in Psalm 2. Much of Isaiah chapter 11, it's alluded to pretty strongly in Joel chapter 3, Amos chapter 9, and pretty much any one of the minor, the small prophets in your Old Testament are going to make reference to a coming glorious time when Jesus will, then the Messiah, the Christ will literally reign on the earth. The Lord will literally reign on the earth. It's a very common theme in Old Testament prophecy. In the New Testament, the saints and the Lord reigning together on the earth is mentioned explicitly in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3. And 2 Timothy 2, 12. And I know I'm fine and I'm not using the screens. So if you, if, you, if you want to run some of that down and you didn't, just couldn't keep, keep up with me, email me and I'll, I'll, I'll send you that all, Okay. Most of us who are pre-millennialist, as I am, believe that we are living in a time today before and in anticipation of that future, quite literal, thousand-year reign. Um, So, Roman numeral one, the reign. Roman numeral two, the rebellion. At the end of that thousand years, Satan gets another shot. I don't know why. I, 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 hey, hey, God, you're supposed to tell me why. <laughs> Russell, you're supposed to take what I give you. Okay, got it. Verses 7 through 10 of chapter 20. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth. Lost people will continue to live and die and, and, and populate the earth even during the millennium. He will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Well, I know what Gog is Gog is the USSR. Oops. Some identify these with, with, with certain parts of the Asian landmass. I don't know enough to either agree with you or argue with you. I do know that they are powerful, worldly, political centers. And since all worldly political centers will declare war on the Lamb, it doesn't much matter which two these are. For all, you know, I won't belabor the point. He gathers them for battle, and the number is like the sand of the sea, and they came up over the surface of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city, that is, Jerusalem from which Jesus has been reigning during these thousand years. And then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Huh! He just doesn't like battles. Um. Um, omnipotence, my son who was in the Army uh, gave me a quote that one of his, one of his uh, NCOs once shared with him regarding battle plans. One of, my, one of my sons, who was an officer, one of his NCOs once said to him, uh, Captain, remember this, if you ever find yourself in a fair fight, your tactics stink. <laughs> you don't want, not, the United States Army does not train to get into a fair fight. Right? You don't want a fair fight. Well, you deal with omnipotence. You get together your big innumerable army. You're going to make one more big pitch out of it. You're going to, wow, we'll show them this time. They've beaten us every time. We We're going to do it this time. We're going to oppose them. We've got all of us. We're going to gather together and then whoosh, done. <laughs> I am so thankful for grace because I belong in that opposing army that gets barbecued. In fact, I belong with those that will roast forever because my sin is so great. When I read this story, I don't, I don't giggle and cackle and say, that'll show them. Hmm. Not mostly. Mostly I go, were it not for grace, that's me. That's my story. Were it not for grace. They get whooshed out of existence. They get blasted away. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. If you have friends that deny the doctrine of the eternality of hell, there's your verse. Tormented day and night forever and ever. That's what happens to those who go to hell. That's Revelation 20, verse 10. The great white throne judgment is the judgment of the unbelievers. Roman numeral three, the reckoning. The reckoning. The judgment on unbelievers. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it earth and heaven fled from his presence. and No place was found for them. I also saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. But hang on, there's a little bit more to be said about that in a moment. And then the sea gave up its dead. Death and Hades gave up their dead, that is the intermediate hell. The hell where people who are outside of Christ and who have died are suffering now is not the final lake of fire in the same sense that the presence of Jesus where your loved ones who love the Lord have gone where they have, when they have died. They are themselves. They are present with the Lord. They are not in the final heaven, which has yet to be revealed. There's an intermediate heaven and hell. They're terribly pleasant if it's heaven and terribly unpleasant if it's hell. Those those places forfeited their inhabitants and all were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire and this is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. We already know from verse 10 that the lake of fire is a place of eternal torment. And now we know from verse 15 that those who are outside of the love of Jesus, the book of life, go there forever. So there's your doctrine of eternal punishment for the unbeliever in two verses. You can get it lots of other places, but that's a nice, succinct place to go for it. Roman numeral four. The residence. Not residence TS, all who who have ever followed Christ, but the residence uh, CE, the place of dwelling, the home. The rest of the book of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22, talk about the great city. Then I saw a new heaven. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to put my toe into it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea existed no longer. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will exist no longer. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. And he also said, Right, because these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give to the thirsty from the spring of living water as a gift. The victor will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, unbelievers, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, that is, those who have not known the transforming love of Jesus Christ as Savior, will share in the lake of fire. Or in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then he goes on to describe heaven, and I'm just going to touch a couple of things. First, heaven is a city, the capital city, the capital city of the new heavens and the new earth, is New Jerusalem. It is a city. I I love musicians. I'm not a technically accomplished musician, a musician. But I I love musicians, and I'm glad that God has made it so clear that he is to be worshipped with music and song. He makes that very clear in the Old Testament and the New, that we are to praise him with music and song, and I'm glad. (laughs) But, but, But at various points in my life, I've listened to what I lovingly and graciously call the music people describe heaven. When the music people describe heaven, it's like this eternal stadium concert um, where we're going to all be in one great big stadium singing songs forever. That just doesn't match the scriptural picture of heaven. And all the music people love the idea of an eternal stadium. I want to sit down after two songs. Sometimes the music people want to sing six or seven songs, and by the end, I love Jesus, but I'm tired. <laughs> and I don't know that my glorified, resurrected body will get tired, but I'm glad, I'm glad that New Jerusalem is a massive, busy city. And the, 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 the picture given through the rest of 21 and 22 ignites my heart. What would it look like? if we had this massive city, this massive, highly populated city with everything that a massive, highly populated city has, but no sin. We won't be gluttons, but we'll eat. Jesus ate fish on at least two occasions after his resurrection. Resurrection bodies eat. I bet heaven will have incredible restaurants. And I'm not, I'm, 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 I'm. I'm not. I think it's wonderful and laugh-worthy, but I'm not intending to be funny. Imagine again. What? What was? What would a massive, busy, highly populated city have if you subtracted? Take. Take the world. What would London be like if there were no sin? What? What amazing things would be left? The art, the creativity, the music, the beauty, the architecture. What would? What would? The. The. The Tokyo skyline look like if you just took sin out but kept everything else. Or you think of your favorite city. Just subtract the sin and start imagining and and and, and put that put that in your mind and then let Revelation 21 and 22 light that up for you. We'll 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 worship the Lamb. Jesus Christ is eternally a resurrected human being. The resurrection is a physical reality. And Jesus is seated as a resurrected, in flesh, human being today. From the time he walked out of the grave on Easter Sunday morning through to today, we have, the Bible says there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. The resurrected Christ is a human being with an actual throne, that's going to be in that actual city of New Jerusalem. And we'll get to go to that throne and sing, I guess, anytime you want to. There's no night. You apparently won't require sleep because the degrading effects of fatigue will be a whole lot less. So you want to go to the throne and sing for a couple thousand years? Have at amazing. If you want to think more deeply about heaven, I've given, you, I've given you a number of resources on the bottom of your note page today. I left off two, and it's entirely my fault. I can't believe I left them off. I wasn't smart, but here they are. Add these two books to the list of resources. If you want to do a serious Bible study on heaven that looks at pretty much everything the Bible says about heaven, I recommend to you John MacArthur, M-A-C-A-R-T-H-U-R. The book is entitled, The Glory of Heaven. You will have the time of your life. If you want somebody who knows and loves the Word of God to take you by the hand and walk you through what the Word of God teaches about heaven, the glory of heaven by John MacArthur. Now, John MacArthur is, is, I believe, one of our greatest living Bible teachers. But he does have, he has the the heart of a Holy Spirit-inhabited academic. So his heart's on fire, but his approach tends to be a bit academic. doesn't mean this stuff's hard to read. You'll love it. If instead, You'd like to approach a study of heaven from somebody who's got the heart of a Holy Spirit-led poet. The book is just as scriptural as MacArthur's book, but it's less technical. Randy Alcorn. Think acorn like what fell off an oak tree, but add an L after the A. Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, is a phenomenal book. If I had my choice, I want MacArthur writing the lyrics but I want Alcorn writing the music. <laughs> you know what I mean? Alcorn, Alcorn will just inflame your, MacArthur will inform you biblically and that's incredible and important. And obviously the very thought of heaven will fire up your heart. Alcorn will fire up your heart and inform you biblically. They're both doing the same work, it's just what foot first. MacArthur steps first with biblical scholarship. Alcorn steps first with, imagine if God created a city without sin for the sake of demonstrating his love for his people, whom he died to have for himself. Woo, you got my attention. Now we're off and running. Both great books. The other resources that I've listed there are, are, um, I don't know that there is a book in the list that I've given you that I agree with every sentence of. In fact, I doubt I own a book that I agree with every sentence of. I'm quite certain I've never preached a sermon that I would go back two weeks later and not change something. Um, so so if, if, if you take one of these books and you, and you buy it and halfway through chapter 17 you find a paragraph you don't think I would agree with, you're probably right and we'll be okay. But these are worth having and I've given you some, some resources. If you were going to just spend a little bit uh, and just maybe add one resource to your library, uh, the second author down, Alan Kirshner, and the first of the two books I've given you. For, by, uh, are, uh, Kirshner's pre-wrath, A Very Short Introduction, is just what it sounds like it is. You'd read it in a couple hours if you're, if you're a reader, if that. It's a, it's, it's a great sketch. Uh, his second, the second book I've given you by him, Antichrist Before the Day of the Lord, is a great read. Cooper... Another great read, a little bit harder read, the very first book I've given you, there, God's Elect and the Great Tribulation. All of these books are from the pre-wrath position. These all, I would not recommend to you a book that's going to load you up to argue with me. Who do you think I am? <laughs> and again, no, I'm not giving equal time to the pre-trib position. I am equal time to the pre-trib position. With great respect to brothers and sisters who hold that position. Rosenthal's Pre-Wrath, the Pre-Wrath Rapture of the Church published in 1990, um, in some ways a seminal work for the articulation. It was Rosenthal that came up with the term Pre-Wrath Rapture. He did not come up with the position as any of these books, several of these books have uh, uh, chapters on the history of viewpoints on the end times. The Pre-Wrath position is not new. How can it be? It was Paul's. Um, And then if you just want to dig, if you say, look, forget this lightweight stuff. Man, I'm a a Bible student. I just want to dig the sign by Van Kampen and brace yourself, cinch up. Because Van Kampen, Van Kampen is a technical work. Now, it's not unapproachable. It's written in English for English readers. It's it's written in contemporary English. It's not not an old book. But Van Kampen intends to hold your head underwater until you can't breathe anymore and admit that he's right, okay? So Van Kampen is going to hit you high, low, and middle. This this six-week study would fit, I think, in Van Kampen's chapter one, and it's a thick book. So if you really want to dig... I give you Van Kampen. And by the way, um, how many of you all have visited the scriptorium, the Bible Museum at the Holy Land Experience up in Orlando? All right. The manuscripts in the the scriptorium, that collection belongs to this guy. It's the Van Kampen family collection that drives the scriptorium at the Holy Land Experience. That's this guy and his family, Uh, just for that connection there, for what it's worth. Incredible Museum of the History of the Bible Manuscripts and stuff. That one thing at the Holy Land Experience and the Jerusalem model are the two things that make buying a ticket there worth it should you ever be inclined to do that. Alright, one final word and then I'm, then I'm done. I'll pray. Final word. Thank you. There are, there are brothers serving in churches around especially around the Bible Belt in the Southeast, that if they, if they let leak a hint that, that maybe, just maybe, eminence could be questioned, there would be an immediate called deacons meeting that night. There would be a personnel committee meeting before Sunday And there would be a sheet cake reception on Sunday afternoon. (laughs) And I wish I was kidding. It is no small thing that this body of Christ has decided that an atmosphere of gracious freedom within the boundary of our confession of faith, within the boundary of gospel integrity. But within that boundary, there's, there's room to breathe and room to think and room quite specifically for me in these six weeks to teach with freedom, but without fear that I'm endangering my ability to make my next house payment by teaching from conviction. If you've always been a part of churches that that are that way, praise God, I haven't. And so I I am grateful to the Lord for you. I'm grateful to you. And again, six weeks ago, I said, let's study the Bible together and know what we believe, whether we agree with each other or not. If we disagree, let's do it graciously and let's commit together that our faith will be designed for the tough times ahead whether it's the end of time or whether it's the rough stuff that's coming at some of us next week, whatever that is. The thank you is real, guys. I really, truly, truly, truly mean it. It is, it is a joy to be a part of a, a team that shepherds a people that is characteristically and overwhelmingly gracious. And I am profoundly thankful to the Lord for the privilege of, of teaching here. Wouldn't want to be anywhere else for what it's worth. All right? And glory to God. Glory to God. All right. All right. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word and thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, thank you that you are, you are going to be vindicated. And thank you that that's, that's good news because you have plenty to be angry at me about, but you've chosen to take your anger out on the cross. And while from time to time you have to to spank me to get my attention, even that is in an atmosphere of grace and forgiveness and love and acceptance from you, which I don't deserve. And when I read about the horrific things that are coming on the earth and the unbelievers on the earth, May it always ignite my heart to tell somebody about Jesus. Because there are bad stuff ahead. And whether it's end of time bad stuff, or whether it's just the appointed demand once to die, and after that the judgment bad stuff. You've, you've, You've placed every one of us who are believers in the role of ambassador mouthpiece to warn the lost That this is reality and this is what's coming. And they desperately need forgiveness. And if they'll receive it, they may have it. May that be our message. Thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you that we have each other. Thank you for the stuff you're up to here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And you did